Eggplant from Africa, A Soup for a Saint, and The Pesto Boss. This week, we're in Sicily and Venice, Italy. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where we explore interesting and delicious food from around the world on the Destination Eat Drink podcast and at DestinationEatDrink.com. This week, Katie Parla returns to talk about Sicily and Venice and her new book, Food of the Italian Islands. But first, if you like the podcast, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. It'll keep you updated on the podcast for sure, but also all the stories at DestinationEatDrink.com, as well as our videos. There's lots of stuff in the Destination Eat Drink universe, so don't miss any of it. Sign up at DestinationEatDrink.com. Katie Parla is an award-winning cookbook author with several titles to her credit, including her latest book, Food of the Italian Islands. Katie is also a tour guide. She offers private tours of her adopted city of Rome. She also takes folks to Venice, Naples, Sicily, and Sardinia. Katie also hosts the great podcast called Gola about Italian food. Not to mention, Katie's now been on the Destination Eat Drink podcast four times. This time out, Katie tells me about the hottest train ride ever, so many kinds of pesto, including my favorite pistachio pesto, pasta alla norma, and the select aperitivo. Plus, we talk little plates in Venice and almond paste sweets, and I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Katie Parlow, welcome back to Destination Eat Drink. I had you on the podcast two weeks ago to talk about your new book, which had just come out, Food of the Italian Islands. We ran out of time, and I made you promise that you would come back in two weeks. And, of course, here you are. Thank you so much for being back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to talk to you more about this book. One of the things, I read the book cover to cover, as I told you before, one of the things that I really loved was the way that you opened the book. I mean, it's a cookbook, right, Katie? But it's also, in a way, it's kind of a travel memoir because you tell all these great stories and about these great places all over Italy. And you sort of open the book with a great story that really resonated with me. Uh, you talked about years ago, one of your, I think it might have been your first trip to Sicily. You get on a train, and it's unbearably hot, and the train carriage has no AC, and the old Italian ladies in your carriage with you won't allow you to open the window so you can get a little breeze blowing. And this is just one of my favorite cultural differences between the United States and Italy. I mean, God forbid moving air, much less cooled air, comes in contact with your body at any point whatsoever. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what they were so worried about. The outside air was like 100 degrees. We would have been fine. <laughs> well, it's a great story. It really resonated with me. I, I, loved, I loved reading about your, uh, your first trip to Sicily. And you call Sicily in your book the capital of pesto. I think most people, when they think of pesto, they think of northern Italy, most associated with places like Genova. Um, but you call Sicily the capital of pesto. Why is that? 
Yeah, I mean, for sure, Genova has the lockdown on pesto the way that Kleenex uh, has on tissues. <laughs> um, so there are so many different pesto sauces in Italy, and so many are present in Sicily. Like pesto just comes from the verb pestare. So imagine like mashing something with a mortar and pestle or in a more modern sense, blending it up in a food processor. Um, and generally speaking, it includes like nuts and oil and garlic um, and herbs. Um, but in Sicily, you also find a lot of tomatoes used, um, different types of cheeses, or sometimes a total absence of cheese. And in the cookbook um, section, uh, it, rather in the pasta section of the cookbook, there's a whole pesto spread. Yes. And it includes pesto from the Aeolian Islands, pesto from Trapani, pesto from Pantelleria, pesto from Linoza. And then we even dip over to Sardinia for pesto in the style of Carlo Forte. Um, there are also a couple of pestos in there that aren't necessarily rooted in a specific place, but have become kind of like a pan Sicilian pesto that you might find on a Neo Trattoria menu, like pistachio pesto tends to be pretty common, something that grew up around the Bronte pistachio tradition um, around Mount Etna, and then now is spread, I mean, all over the island. And when I say island, I should really, when we're speaking of Sicily, we should call it islands, right? Sicily is the, the sort of mainland in this analogy. You have the Aeolian Islands in the north, Ustiga off the coast of Palermo. Um, you've got the Egidi Islands. Um, there are so many little island chains um, or sort of individual guys like Pantelleria hanging out there on their own. Um, it's a it's an island nation of sorts. I'm so glad you brought up pistachio pesto for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Sicilian pistachios are unbelievable. Um, we get good pistachios here in Portugal, but in Sicily, they are totally different level. And as I was reading that chapter on pestos, you have all these different pesto recipes, and I got so hungry, I pretty much put it down and said, all right, I got to make this pistachio recipe. I think I have all the ingredients. And I went into the kitchen, and I had everything for the pistachio pesto recipe except for the mint. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to make it anyway. I'll just, it. I'll, fine. I'll just like, omit the mint. You're the pesto, <laughs> you're the pesto boss. It's not, it's, <laughs> it's good, no matter what. It was good. It was, it was really, really good. But a couple of days later, I went to our local market and the vendor who I always go to, she gave me a bunch of mint and I went home and I made the recipe again. And I got to tell you, Katie Parla, next level when you add in fresh mint to your pistachio pesto recipe. I'm glad it was a hit. Can I give you like an even simpler recipe that sure. as long as you have pistachios in the, in the cupboard, you probably have the other stuff too. There's uh, a recipe in the dessert section called crema di pistacchio. And it's just made with salted shelled pistachios, a little bit of sugar and some water. You buzz it up and it's so freaking delicious. And you spread it on bread like Nutella, but it's not full of chemicals. So that's awesome. And it's so, so delicious. Man. That is going to be a huge hit in my house because I love pistachios, but my girlfriend, she loves, loves, loves pistachios. So, um, yeah, I'm going to definitely be doing that when, uh, when, when the need arises, which will probably be tonight. Um, when we talk about pestos, when we talk about any kind of pasta that we're serving, the 
question is always what kind of pasta, what shape of pasta do we serve? And pestos, you know, you, you just very nicely described how many different kinds of pestos there are, but it generally comes as a, as a sauce, as a, you know, a condimento. Do you have a favorite kind of pasta shape, a type of pasta that you like to serve with pestos? Yeah, I kind of go the traditional route where in uh, Italy, whether you're in Genova or Carloforte in Sardinia, Trapani in Sicily, you're either going for like the Fusillo vibe, which is a twisty pasta. Um, you know, it would be called Trofie in Genova and also in Carloforte because the people who founded that village are of Genovese origin. Uh, buziate, which are like these sort of long curly fusilli are really typical of trapani or still following the traditional pairing. I'll go for like a long strand linguine spaghetti. Those are all, those are all good because like, this is not a, this is not a saucy, um, sort of chunky type of situation where you might need a tube to scoop it up. Um, but instead like something that, that allows the sauce to cling to the architecture of the noodle. Now that's not to say I would turn down rigatoni with pesto. Of course I would eat that, but I generally go for like the twisty fusillo vibe or a long strand. Good advice. I, I, I don't mind the rigatoni. I also like a penne cause it has the ridges in it. So you can get some pesto stuck in there. I, I like that as well. I want to talk about my favorite vegetable, which is eggplant because in Sicily, eggplant is everywhere. Um, and I think maybe the most iconic dish to use eggplant in uh, Sicily is one of my favorites, pasta alla norma. Could you talk about that dish a little bit? Maybe uh, how you like to prepare it and uh, some of the uh, interesting uh, history behind it. Yeah, this is uh, summer on a plate, although it's something that's made year round now in Sicily. And it consists of a tomato-based sauce that you fold in uh, bits of fried eggplant. Um, and then you toss it all together and hit it with a flurry of ricotta salata, which is a ricotta that's been salted to concentrate its flavors and to draw out the, the moisture. So it's grateable, unlike the spreadable ricotta. Um, and this is something that you find you know, mainly like so many recipes in Sicily it grows up around Catania and then spreads out to the rest of the island and now literally the world. Like this is something you can find in like LA. I'm sure they serve it in different places in Portugal. Um, it's on Italian menus in New York and has become kind of a symbol. And what I, you know, what I love about it is when it's prepared in peak season, it just has so much incredible flavor. Um, and I'll use whole canned peeled tomatoes if I'm making this out of the summer months, but in the summer months, I'll use a, a really flavorful, concentrated uh, cherry tomato or date tomato from Sicily. And so many of the markets in Rome uh, where I'm based is uh, are filled with Sicilian tomatoes. So even though there's local tomato cultivation, we do get a lot of Sicilian tomatoes that can be combined with the locally cultivated eggplants. Uh, and you know, another sort of, I think, fun fun fact about this dish is um, pasta itself is introduced to Sicily, at least in a, a sort of uh, mass-produced way by Arabs in the ninth century. That's 
that also goes for eggplants. Yes. Whereas the Spanish who controlled Southern Italy until the mid 19th century introduced uh, tomatoes from the Americas. And so this is a, this is a dish that combines what you might consider, you know, foreign or imported ingredients um, with uh with a ricotta salata that's a, a very Sicilian ingredient. So I notice you've got several eggplant recipes in your uh, book, Katie, and I, I might not be correct on this, but I noticed that typically you fry your eggplant and you don't bread it. Uh, maybe I'm stepping into something here that I'm not aware of, but uh, talk to me about, the, is, there, is there an issue with breading the eggplant that you don't like, or it just didn't happen to come up in these recipes that you had? I mean, my Italian-American eggplant parm recipe is egged and bread, actually flour, egg and bread. Um, But I'm cooking the way that I've learned to at Sicilian tables, which is generally in an absence of a breaded coating. Um, And of course, you'll find like battered and fried eggplant sticks uh, in certain fritto misto uh, presentations. But the eggplant dishes are already like you're frying eggplant, which is an oil sponge, right? If you add an extra layer that's going to be absorbing oil, then you risk having a a heavier um, product. And I would say if anyone who's skeptical, who's, you know, really finds comfort in the breading, just try it once without it and, and compare the sort of heft in your mouth. Um, I, I prefer certain recipes without breading, but you know what, if I'm in Jersey, get an eggplant parm sub, there better be bread. There better be bread. Otherwise, I'm sending it back. <laughs> I, I love your Jersey roots. Um, <laughs> any other uh, eggplant recipes that you're especially fond of? I mean, the OG, right? The caponata, this kind of sweet and sour uh, dish that like so many had tomato added to it subsequently. So it's essentially fried eggplant that could be flavored with Uh, sugar or honey um, and a little bit of vinegar for tang and then folded with some soft celery and pine nuts and raisins. So it's a really, um, it's a dish that feels really close to North African preparations. Um, But of course, you know, we've talked about the importation of certain types of produce during the Arab presence in, in Sicily. And so this is a dish that would have emerged from that tradition and then tomatoes get added. Um, and tomatoes can kind of dominate the equation in a lot of preparations. Um, but many home cooks, um, anecdotally or referencing, uh, directly referencing recipes will say, actually it's the celery that would have been a major protagonist. And now that's been scaled back due to, you know, modern habits. It's also much easier just to like open a can of tomatoes than it is to, uh, you know, clean celery because we don't just often chop the celery, but we strip off the outer uh, fibers many times. So that's a, a level prep that uh, that seems to have pushed people a bit away from that recipe. St. Joseph's Day was just last week. I'd lived in uh, New England for many years and in Rhode Island, St. Joseph's Day is a huge deal because we all go out to the bakeries like LaSalle Bakery in Providence and get zaples. Um, but you've got a recipe in your book for a uh, fava bean chickpea soup that's, uh, that's consumed on St. Joseph's Day. Can you tell me a little bit about the uh, macu de fava de San Giuseppe? 
Yeah, so there are a lot of foods that are associated with religious holidays. Um, and most people, when they're thinking of St. Joseph's Day, March uh, 19th, they're thinking of like fried dough that's been filled with an impossible amount of sweetened ricotta studded with potato uh, potato chips. That's the wrong word. Chocolate <laughs> chips. Um, <laughs> so the Sinje of San Giuseppe or Bignet di San Giuseppe on the mainland. Uh, but yeah, this um, this is kind of like a, a, a springtime stew. And the very first favas of the season start to appear in uh, around March. And they're so tiny and they're so sweet. And you don't have to remove the outer um, uh, sort of, well, you, of course, remove them from the husk. And then you don't have to take them out of their, what's the like bean container? You know, when you make... Favas, I, you like, I always call it, yeah, I always call it the shell, the fava shell. Yeah, I don't know if that's the, the right word or not. Exactly. That's the shell. So like, you know, throughout the season, I, what I love about this, one of the many things aside from the delicious flavor, um, is that it shows you how Sicilians treat certain produce depending on its life cycle. So San Giuseppe, always on March 19th, falls when the favas are unbelievably tender and young. Whereas when you're making fava dishes in other parts of Sicily later, they tend to be the big dried favas that have to be uh, reconstituted and stewed and blended uh, in order to uh, to return the sort of moisture and and flavor to them. So this is this is springtime. If uh, if pasta alla norma was summertime on a plate, this is springtime on a plate. Would this be a dish, Katie, that we would get just at home? Home cooks would only be making it? Or if I happen to be in Sicily for St. Joseph's Day, if I went into a trattoria or something, would I be able to get a bowl of this? You might be able to find it in certain trattoria, but it's it's certainly a home dish. And, you know, a lot of the a lot of the dining in Sicily is not uh trattoria based. A lot of the dining that Sicilians engage with is in the rosticeria, frigatoria, or market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on St. Joseph's Day, you're more likely to consume a, a fried dough ball stuffed with <laughs> ricotta. That's going to be the ubiquitous thing. Whereas uh, just because of the way that people engage with, with cuisine, um, this would be a more home dish for sure. I'm going to definitely be looking if here in Portugal, um, if they happen to have some of these uh, fava beans, these young fava beans, because I tend to steer away from fresh fava beans just because it's such a pain to process them. You talk about taking them out of the pod and then you got to get them out of the shell and everything. It it takes a long time. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a baby about this, but um, I'm definitely going to be looking for these uh, for these little fava beans in in the springtime here. one, I don't think uh, being a baby, thing. everyone, there's no shame in having things prepped and and choosing <laughs> ingredients because they're easy to process. That's a tale as old as time. My first visit to Sicily, I was just blown away by the extravagant um, almond paste fruit, the frutta um, martirana, which are just exquisite. They make these, these little almond paste um, creations that look exactly like tiny little miniature pieces of fruit. Sometimes they're little animals and whatnot. And the artistic work that went into these just kind of blew my mind the first time I went to Sicily. It's like, I want to look at them. I don't want to eat them because they're so gorgeous. Tell me a little bit more about uh, this almond paste fruit that we'll see in Sicily. 
Yeah, so Fruta Martirana is found now all over the island. You can even find it, you know, like in the Rome airport in hermetically sealed like baskets as a souvenir for people <laughs> to take home. Um, but it is uh, it is a mixture of like almond flour and sugar. Glucose is also commonly used um, as uh, as an ingredient, or you could use honey. Um, and then you create this like this paste that you press into uh, terracotta um, forms, which are sold absolutely everywhere. <laughs> like there are some places in particular, um, and I have a, a guide to Palermo on my site uh, that names some of my favorite spots, but all of these little um, uh, hardware stores and um, houseware shops and dollar stores sell them for like two euros each. So if you like figs, you can buy a fig shaped one. If you're into prickly pears, you can do that too. And then you use different types of uh, food coloring uh, and like a little paintbrush and you just, you go to town and I highly recommend, like I'm no artist. <laughs> I highly recommend like making a lot of almond paste and then practicing uh, a lot until you can execute uh, a very, uh, let's say, believable fruit version. I remember like my <laughs> first oranges were like more orange than an orange. And I was like, that looks fake. Um, but with some uh, trial and error and a little artistic flair, you can make these fruits that look like figs or cherries or prickly pears. And it's just, it's a really fun thing. Not everyone actually likes to eat them. Um, this is one, you know, I go to Sicily all the time. I take people down there all the time. And it's not the like lung and spleen sandwich that people resist. It's not um, the chickpea fritters that people have prepared with her, their hands. It's the almond paste things. And people are like, eh, I don't know. I don't like it. Oh, wow. Uh, which is which is unfortunate because when they're done properly, they're really good. As I was prepping to talk to you about Sicily, Katie, it made me think more about uh, our trips to Sicily. And I remember going to uh, uh, Ortigia, which is a little island off Syri part of Syracuse. And I know that you're such a huge pizza fan. We've had you on the show talking about pizza exclusively. And I remember they had a pizza there that I hadn't seen in other places. Now, maybe it's available in other places and I'm just not aware of it. But they had something called a uh, pizzolo, which is a double-crusted pizza. There's a crust on the bottom and a crust on the top. And I hadn't seen it anywhere else besides in Ortigia. And I just wanted to ask you before we leave Sicily, um, if you're familiar with this, is it available in other places? What's your opinion? So yeah, a pizzolo, uh, there's actually, it's part of a larger, uh, like torta rustica pizza category. Like when you hear the word pizza, um, certainly if, if you're from outside of Italy, um, you think of like an open face bread disc that's been cooked in an oven and there's melted cheese and tomato. That's a really limiting definition because in Italy, Pizza can be used for a huge range of things, including uh, almost like covered quiches, um, uh, lard based dough that has been layered and stuffed with um, salamis or eggs or vegetables that have been sauteed. And so this is just sort of like a, like a vegetable tart of sorts. Um, you might have encountered it with different fillings, but this 
enclosed like stuffed bread is common all over, not just Sicily, but the South. I mean, you'll find similar things in uh, Naples, in Reggio Calabria, and they'll be called, you know, pizza or something that sounds like pizza will be in the, the description. It was delicious in Ortigia. I loved it. And uh, we got ours, I think it was stuffed with uh, rucola and maybe ricotta salata. I can't remember what the cheese was, but I do remember the place. It was called uh, Calliope, and they were serving up bottles of unlabeled wine, which to me is always a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it was a melty type of cheese. It was most likely tuma, which is a a style of cheese that's really common in uh, Sicilian savory baking. Let's leave Sicily for now and travel to the other far corner of Italy, uh, Venice, the Veneto region, because you do, you've got several uh, recipes from there. And one of the things that jumped out at me first when you were talking about Venice was something called Select Aperitivo. What exactly is Select Aperitivo? Select is a red bitter liqueur. Um, which has relatively low alcohol by volume, I think around 12 or 13%. So it falls under a category of liqueurs that in Italy are called aperitivo. The color is dark red, very similar to Campari, which has um, uh, about double the alcohol by volume and goes by a category known as bitter, spelled bitter. So in Northern Italy in particular, there was a tradition of cities developing red bitter liqueurs for use in usually lighter cocktails. So in Venice, Select is born about 100 years ago. In Padova, Aperol is born. And then Campari in in Milan and up in Trento, Capelletti. About 10 years ago, the Campari company acquired Aperol and conducted a a very aggressive and super successful campaign to marry Aperol with the spritz in the mind of consumers, first in Italy and then worldwide. Before that, that spritz was, you know, remained kind of a, a regional thing. And if you were in Venice and you asked for a spritz, there wasn't like a choice. They would just give it to you with select. Um, and they would mix the select, you know, with the typical spritz ingredients, uh, sparkling wine and sparkling water. Um, today, if you order a spritz al select, you impress the bartender because they think, you know, you know, you know what you're doing. <laughs> and you're not going for the Padova liqueur, Aperol, which makes them very regionally proud. And spritz is something that is, it probably maxes out at around six or seven percent alcohol. Uh, by volume. It's super fun and flirty looking. It looks like a red sunset. It's served with spiked green olives or sometimes an orange wheel. And it's meant to whet your appetite. In aperitivo culture, generally in Italy, you have one of these light red bitter based cocktails just to like get get your juices flowing before a meal. Venetians are very heavy drinkers, however. So sometimes they'll start drinking it in the morning and keep drinking it throughout the day. And so it doesn't serve this, the same appetite wedding, um, but more like something that you can drink all day without being totally trashed at work. So we get a select aperitivo and in we're in Venice. So we're going to have chichetti. 
which are the small plates that are similar to tapas, but don't dare call them tapas in Venice. Um, otherwise, my, like- my, my, my buddy Monica will just come down your throat, you know. <laughs> she's wonderful, but she's like, call them chicchetti. Um, so what kind of chicchetti are we going to have with our select? Totally depends on where you are because there are places that go super old school and they use a little piece of ponenta um, with uh, a grilled baby cuttlefish on top um, or some polenta with a little bit of um, bacala mantecato, which is a salted cod spread. Um, others will use toast and bread and toast in general are relatively new additions in Venice. Um, and they tend to be like frozen baguettes that are not the, let's say, apex of baking culture. Um, others will use little toasted pieces, um, like a sort of crostino. In all cases, the carbohydrate is uh, the vehicle for delivering whatever happens to be on top. And these are usually like two or three biters, things that you can eat standing up, balancing your spritz and your plate um, at a baccaro, which is kind of like the the watering hole in Venice. But now there's just such a huge range of things that uh, fall into the snacks category and kind of go beyond chiquetti, like tramezzini are absolutely everywhere. And places that sell chiquetti will also sell little triangular sandwiches with the crust cut off filled with uh, tuna and egg or um, a sort of spicy uh, bell pe- chopped bell pepper mayonnaise. Um, there's lots and lots of fillings for these things. But I think chiquetti are uh, chiquetti is a state of mind. <laughs> it's it's a concept that now has grown to cover a lot more than just those small Venetian bites. Um, and when you like hang out with Venetian friends in uh, February, there was carnival going on. And so people would invite you out uh, to chiquetare, right? Chiquetando. It's now become a verb to go like graze on lots of little bites, have a drink oh, cool. each at each uh, spot. I love eating like this, whether I'm in Spain or whether I'm in Italy, here in Portugal, we have petiscos. This is my favorite way because you can you can have a little something, enjoy it, maybe have a glass of wine or whatever you have, and then you move on to the next place. And this is a way, I was talking with friends about this yesterday, this is a way you get to sample a lot of different things, especially when you're on vacation. It's like you go to a restaurant and you eat this big giant meal and then you don't want to have anything else. And it's like, well, maybe it was fantastic, but if I can have two, three, four, five different things, then I'm really, really happy. You know, It's also uh, an affordable way to eat in Venice, um, which is a city where I will, of course, acknowledge there's some people doing great food, but it is generally a city where people who own restaurants and particularly people who buy the ingredients for the restaurants don't really respect the clientele very much and aren't committed to sourcing fresh fish and great produce, though the prices imply that they're using really high quality stuff. <laughs> when you go out in Venice and and have, the, the portions are also much smaller here than in other parts of Italy. So while in Rome, if you ordered antipasto, primo, secondo, contorno, dolce, you would like roll out of the place. Here, in order to be full, you do kind of have to get the whole shebang. Um, and that ends up being so much money. You know, 80 bucks, 100, 150 a head is not unusual for a meal made with fresh ingredients, produce from St. Erasmus, uh, the the farm island here, fresh uh, fish caught in the lagoon. Like that's a lot of money. And you could just go chiquitare for 20 euros and you get your snacks and you get your booze and you feel kind of full. 
Uh, and it's it's a really affordable way to eat. That's how Venetians experience their city because going out to eat, even with the local discount and the cash discount, both of which are very real things, um, it's it's not accessible to go out and eat well here. You made a fleeting reference to San Erasmo, um, which is an island near Venice, and you visited there. There's a lot of farms out there. Uh, describe what that experience was like, and is that something that you would recommend folks who visit Venice that they do as well? Yeah, San Erasmo is very cool. Like getting there is pretty simple. You take a boat. Um, it's uh, I think I, I don't I have a Venice like transit card, so it's it's like really cheap for me to go. But I think it's maybe like seven euros each way. Uh, and you take the public transport out there. You can hop off at one end, get the boat back uh, on the other end. It's not like super monument heavy. There's not a ton of stuff going on. It's mostly just farms and a couple of little clusters of houses here and there. Um, there is a really fun uh, like wood-fired pizza oven that's built into an ape, um, Piaggio's famous <laughs> farmer's cart. And uh, there are some photos in the book of like a Sicilian guy. So a guy from another island <laughs> making pizza on the island next to a canal and vineyards. And so Santorasmo is cool, especially if you go, you know, for like um, a late afternoon pizza um, and uh, bring your like, actually, you don't have to bring your own booze. There's like there are little alcohol stalls at the <laughs> at the uh, ferry stop. So check it out. I'm kind of obsessed with apes. Uh, when we moved to our town here in Portugal on the main drag, there's this old ape. Well, one thing that happens is a lot, there's a couple people that have apes uh, seasonally and they drive around and they roast their chestnuts out of the back of the apes, which so is cool. fun. But my favorite ape in, uh, here in our town in Portugal, um, there's an ape that's chained to a tree on the main drag. And for... Months, I thought it was just abandoned, but it turned out that the guy was a bookseller and I just never walked by when he was open, but he would flip open the side and inside he just had stacks and stacks of paperbacks and he'd pull them out onto a table and he'd, you know, he'd set them up. Maybe people would buy, maybe they'd browse or whatever, but it's my favorite little ape here in uh, Setubal, Portugal. So cool. Well, Katie Parla, thank you so much for being back on Destination Eat Drink. It's always so much fun talking uh, talking with you because I love all of the information that you have and I love talking about Italy. So it's always a good time. Thanks for sharing everything about uh, Sicily and Venice and We'll have a link to your book, Food of the Italian Islands, which is out now in the show notes. Thanks for being here today. I appreciate it. It was so much fun. Thanks for having me back. Okay, there you go. It's always so much fun talking to Katie because she knows her stuff and she allows me to geek out on little stuff like ape trucks. Get in touch with Katie at katieparla.com or get a link in the show notes along with the links to Katie's new book, Food of the Italian Islands in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED225. And you might still have time to see Katie on her book tour. She's continuing that through the end of this month. Find the dates at her website. Well, that'll put a bow on this week's show. Next week, we're at the end of the world in Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. You don't want to miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story about a castle in Portugal with roots dating back to the Romans and later the Moors. 
Read about it at destinationeatdrink.com slash palmella. Not Pamela, Palmella. That's P-A-L-M-E-L-A. Or just go to destinationeatdrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who makes his select aperitivo with scotch, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.